This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, I sit down with O'Shea Jackson, a.k.a. Ice Cube. We met up with the entertainment icon in Las Vegas right before the tip-off of the 2021 Big Three season. Cube shares why he and his business partner, Jeff Quatnitz, decided to start the three-on-three basketball league back in 2017 and looks back on how a missed opportunity to commit violence as a young man. Me and my friends was going around around the corner to to kill him. And um, he wasn't home. Gave him a future. So thank God, you know, thank God he wasn't home because we were young and we was mad and I wouldn't be sitting here if it did. He also opens up about the experiences that shaped his music. It's a shame that your zip code determines on how you're treated. And his efforts to fight racial inequality, both in Hollywood. They just didn't want an all black family. And on the political front. How did you view the heat um, that you took for engaging with the Trump administration? Plus, I caught up with Big Three co-founder Jeff Quatnitz to get his take on a few things, including their partnership. If we knew how impossible it was, I'm not sure we would have done it. But we begin with a question sent in from an NBA superstar. Cube, Steph and Curry, oh, man. Steph. I feel like I might have a little legs after my basketball days are done to, to jump into Hollywood a little bit. So what are your top tips on uh, how to be a great actor? Wow. I, I think you have to bring the emotion of the character to life by, you know, equating it somehow to your life experiences. That's what Lawrence Fishburne told to me when I was doing Boys in the Hood and I was struggling because it was off balance. He said, do you know who Doughboy is? I said, yeah, I know who he is. He said, well, be Doughboy. Stop all this stuff. You know, not just reading words or whatever, but bring my personality, bring my experience to the table. So that's that's a key to being a good actor. I wanted to start by talking to you about the big three. I want to take you uh, way back to how the idea came about in the first place. Uh, being a fan of, of, of hoops um, and playing three on three growing up. We all play three on three in our backyards, playgrounds and it wasn't elevated to the professional level. And nobody had a good reason why. So, you know, I was looking around and saying, this is something that I would definitely go to. Here's Big Three co-founder Jeff Quatnitz. The Big Three got started pretty much the day after Kobe scored 50 points um, during his last season. And Cube's point was, you know, there should be another type of league where, where guys who can play still at the highest level can play. So then it was all about, okay, there's a void in the market. Could we really bring this to, to, to reality? And the answer kept popping up, yes. Um, a ton of work wasn't easy at all. We literally spent about a year um, going through rules, going through ideas, and you know, we looked at a lot of tape, a lot of different three-on-three configurations, how people played it, how FIBA sort of plays it in the Olympics. Um, and we realized, man, it's boring. 
We couldn't figure out why it was boring. And when we got into the rules, we, we figured it out. There's been a, uh, almost an unexpected time investment, a lot of opportunity cost on uh, your end. Uh, elaborate a little bit uh, on that, if you don't mind. When you think of the idea, you think, okay, we're gonna, as soon as we go in there, we're going to sign the big TV contract. We're going to sign the big merch contract. We're going to get all these sponsors. Uh, but you really have to prove yourself. Everybody kept saying, oh, you know the unwritten rule. I'm like, well, there's a lot of unwritten rules. Which one in particular? He said, I'll never get behind a new sports league. We're like, what? Who, who wrote that rule? <laughs> you know, and what we found is 99.9 out of 100 sports leagues don't make it. You know, we saw the XFL come and go. We saw the AAF come and go. And many leagues will come and go, and we just hope to still be standing at the end of the day. The last one to, to make it is UFC. Um, and they struggled for years and years. And, you know, we're actually on a quicker path than they were. Hopefully we'll stay on the path and end and closer to where they are, so it can go on forever. We didn't expect this to be a cakewalk or everybody would do it. This is gonna be, you know, a boulder that we gotta push uphill, but when we get over the crest, it's gonna roll downhill full steam. Everybody told us we were out of our minds. But Cube and I both come from a background where they've been telling us that our whole lives. But if we knew how impossible it was, I'm not sure we would have done it. I think somebody in the NBA space said they give you 10 times your initial investment and buy you out, and you guys said, like, no way, right? We knew this wasn't ready to hand over yet. You know, we knew that, you know, there's things that we want to accomplish with this league. You know, we haven't even talked about the Big Cup. The Big Cup is like, the World Cup, but for three on three. You know, that's our dream, to have the whole world sending teams to compete outside of what the Olympics is doing, which is not really focused on, three on three is focused on every sport imagined. So um, that's a dream, that's our long play. And we have a lot of reception coming from a lot of different parts of the world. In the, the last season, pre-pandemic, uh, Jeff was telling me that, you know, in Hollywood, there's always a period of time where you're the one doing the selling, but then at some point the tides turn and people are, are selling to you. And uh, he said the big three had gotten to that place. How did you see that? First, it was, uh, what is Ice Cube doing with, with basketball? Then it was, Oh, Ice Cube's little three-on-three -three tournament. Then it became, oh, the big three, you know. Um, this is Ice Cube's uh, professional three-on-three -three league. What was the biggest challenge for you guys in navigating the pandemic? Figuring out if we're gonna play a season or not. Uh, we even thought of a, of a Big Brother uh, collaboration. You put our players in a bubble and they gotta play big three games to advance, you know? So we were thinking of a lot of different ways to keep, keep the ball rolling. And um, the most responsible thing to do was to not play. And then it was all about survival. You know, figuring out what we needed to do to, to kind of go down to the bare minimum and still uh, continue to exist, uh, to try to uh, make sure that we were letting the sponsors know that we're coming back strong. Again, Cube's business partner, Jeff Quatnitz. One of the things that stands out about the league is it feels, it does feel like a family. And, and 
you know, whether it's the mental health policy, the use of CBDMD, how we empower them. And, and look, it hurts like a family too sometimes. We, we have a tribute today to Andre Emmett, who after our third season um, was shot and killed when Steven Jackson's friend, you know, George Floyd was killed. Um, you know, that, there was the side that we were all shocked about and horrified about what we saw. So some good times and bad times brings people together as a family. Long-term goals with it would be what? Uh, expanding. We have 12 teams, you know. Um, I believe we need, you know, 16 teams. It's a 10-week season. I think that needs to expand to maybe uh, 16, uh, 20 weeks. Uh, so those are things that we're looking to do. Hopefully we'll be getting some female players soon. There's a couple WNBA stars that were close. But um, who's on your wish list? Uh, from the WNBA? Or, or like all time uh, wish list? On my wish list, maybe Carmelo Anthony, because I think that he is such a world class player. And uh, you get a raw deal when you go to New York. When you were 12, your half sister was murdered by her husband. Mm -hmm. um, how did that impact you? Um, well, you know, it made me realize how how cruel the world could be. Uh, it made me realize that, you know, something as precious as your life can be taken away uh, by somebody you know. And you said it changed your outlook on the world. Mm -hmm. um, in what way? It just made me realize, you know, life is not a joke, you know, it's precious. And, you know, it just made me a more serious person and not, um, you know, it, it, it robs you a little of your childhood. You know, it took away a little bit of, you know, what it is to be a kid, you know. There was a moment in your upbringing where somebody tricked your mom into giving them money. Yeah. Um, take me through what happened and how you kind of lucked out by the, the person not being there. Somebody I knew and went to school with um, who we knew was uh, heavy on drugs, had went around to my house and gave my mother some cockamamie story. So she gave him $20 and I was so mad. You, you violated me and my family because we, you, know, you knew you wasn't gonna ever get that $20 back. So uh, me and my friends was going around around the corner to, to kill him. And um, he wasn't home, so thank God, you know. Thank God he wasn't home, because we were young and we was mad, and we had a weapon, and it was going to happen. So it would have been stupid, and I wouldn't be sitting here if it did happen. Have you ever reflected on that, like how yeah. different the kind of narrative of life would be? Yep, I do. And uh, like I said, I'm glad he wasn't there because, you know, nobody should die over $20. Tell about when your mom uh, once forced you to take uh, an ex-girlfriend to prom. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, you know, I was scheduled to go to the prom with my girlfriend at the time, and um, we broke up maybe 
a week, 10 days before the prime. So I, I asked somebody else to go and um, my mother was not having it. She said, that girl bought her dress, she was ready, she, and you taking her. She your ex now, you know what I'm saying? That's the last person you wanna go to. We was cool, you know. I don't think we talked to each other ever again after that day. <laughs> yeah. uh, so your, uh, I believe your mom was a custodian, your dad was a groundskeeper for UCLA. Um, how would you best explain the role that they played in your life? Everything, you know, they, they uh, helped build the man you see. Um, you know, show me that it was all of our hard work. I could still call him and, you know, tell him how much I love him and, you know, hopefully make sure that, you know, their life is, is, uh, is as good as they made mine growing up. You said when you were young, your dad was strict. Uh, how so? Well, you know, I was worried about him more than anybody in the street. You really? Know, we grew up in, grew up in a, um, you know, pretty tough neighborhood, but nobody was tougher than my father. So it was a sense of security to have him there and to, you know, make sure that, you know, I was staying on the right path. You know, he just always told me um, what it is to be a man and what it is to be responsible. When we was young, of course, we got spankings here and there. But at a certain age, it was all about communication and nothing physical. And um, that's how I communicate with my kids and my sons. Nothing physical, you know, we're gonna communicate. Your grandma for a while worked in a Bel Air mansion. Uh, you would occasionally go to pick her up. What do you remember seeing? Uh, just seeing a big house um, and you know, I was just happy to see my grandmother walk out of there and get in the car. You know, that was a beautiful thing for me to be able to to go and, and see that. Um, you know, I remember when I was young, I, I, uh, I ran and I jumped in, the, in their pool <laughs> when I was little. My uncle scooped me up, but uh, I was so <laughs> excited to see that pool. I just ran in and jumped in with my clothes on. So. At some point in your schooling, your mom uh, makes a decision to have you go to a different school, I think 25 mm -hmm. miles away in yeah. San Fernando Valley, wanted you to kind of, you know, stay out of trouble. And this school, from what I understand, was kind of your first big exposure to socioeconomic uh, disparities. What do you remember uh, noticing? Uh, just that it was a different, different kind of pressure. They wasn't really worried about the things we were worried about. You know, a lot of them was worried about, uh, you know, was they going to summer camp this year? Or did they have to stay home? Was they gonna be able to get a nose job or not? And, you know, these kind of things that were foreign to to me. And, and but, you know, what was cool, it was a different experience. It was, uh, you know, just seeing basically how the other side lives. And, you know, it wasn't to me, uh, you know, less love or more love or any of that. It was just a, a economic disparity that, that trickled down into a lot of different areas, you know. From what I understand, there were some teachers at that school that did not like the idea of black students being there. Well, yeah. What would they do? You know, just be a little snippy. Um, <laughs> try to, you know, uh, 
kind of push their philosophies into the to the class and into the program. Um, but you know, those teachers are easy to spot. You know, we knew what teachers was was cool with it with us, and what teachers, you know, could care less. Uh, so, I don't think that's anything different than any other school. So you said, uh, like, when you became a teenager, uh, programs in the neighborhood started to dwindle. Um, yeah. What impact did you see that have? I remember, you know, Holly Park, which is a place that it's our neighborhood park, and um, they used to have baseball there, you know, and then, you know, it seemed like all the programs kind of dried up, and then the park just became a hangout. And so it definitely, it definitely hurt um, the morale of the neighborhood. You know, kids had less to do, uh, and I don't mind is the devil's workshop. Well, yeah, because you said 80 percent of the neighborhood was fine, twenty percent was uh, hell. Uh, you know, cocaine began saturating the neighborhood. A lot of killings, families being torn up. When all, all that was going on, were you able to kind of, you know, stay focused? Just uh, you know, make up your mind what you're gonna be about. You know, you gotta know who you are and stand on it. So sometimes it's running with everybody and running with the crowd. Sometimes it's standing alone on your own two feet and daring anybody to make you uh, change your mind or change your uh, position. So on our neighborhood, it was a lot of boys, so it was a pecking order in a way. You know, you, you fight with the dudes a little older than you and see <laughs> how high you can go up. It was about being who you are and not um, I guess being who you think you should be, but actually being who you are. From you know what I understand, uh, your parents were really supportive uh, early on of you pursuing music. Yeah. Uh, how so? Well, you know, anything to keep me off the streets, you know, so sports, hanging out with friends, you know. Uh, when I started hanging out with Dr. Dre, they were supportive. You know, we were, they used to just carry crates for them, you know what I mean? clubs or in the little um, dances he would DJ at. And so it was positive. And, uh, and, and then she heard the music. <laughs> My mother got church friends, so <laughs> they, uh, I guess they you know, put the church sweat down on her about the lyrics. What did she say to you? She just said, you know, I love that you're making records and you're doing that, but why do you have to, uh, to you know, use that profanity? I said, I want it to be real, you know? I mean, we gotta, gotta be real or nobody gonna listen to us. Um, and so she accepted that answer. And then, you know, I showed her a royalty check one time. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> keep making those records, you know what I mean? And um, it's cool, you know, cause she knew that this was actually a, a viable life in a, in a business and not just you know, rapping on the corner, so. What do you remember from uh, emceeing for Dre when he was DJing? Uh, that he was extremely um, picky. He was like, no, change that. No, we gotta do that over. Uh, you shouldn't do this part. It's cool because he made us think a little deeper about what we were doing. You know, when you write something, you think everything you write is great. Um, so 
to be able to bounce it off somebody who uh, tell you what you uh, need to know is cool. You know, he won't give up nothing until it's ready um, and try to sell you anything just because it got his name on it. So, uh, you know, I learned that that you must uh, perfect everything and try to before you give it to the public. How did 1985's uh, Crush Groove impact you? Uh, Crush Groove was an amazing movie with all my heroes in it. And it kind of showed me like, yo, this hip hop is limitless. You could take it anywhere. Like, we're, you know, got guys up on the movie screen who are just in, in clubs and in parks and on the street. Now they doing movies. Tell about uh, Kyo. Oh, he's a street dude I went to school with. We were in typing class together because we didn't uh, we didn't get our electives in time. And he's like, "You ever write a rap before?" And I'm like, "No, never." He said, "Okay, we're gonna try it." So, you know, he's the first person that kind of made me even think about writing or being a part of hip hop like that. It just sparked off. Create creativity that never, never turned off for me. How, I, I think it was ninth grade. Uh, how well do you remember the first time you rapped? Trust me, that rap right there didn't get me in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'll tell you that. Right. So, you know, it was okay. Um, I think my name is Ice Cube. I want you to know I'm not Run DMC or Curtis Blow. That's my first line. Yeah. How true is it that you have the piece of paper that you wrote the lyrics on still at your mom's house? Now it's at my house, you know. Uh, me and my wife were going through a bunch of bunch of my old notebooks, and and um, and I was able to pull that up and see it, and saw a lot of different, you know, songs over the years that uh, that's in my notebooks. I had a note one time. Uh, hey, hey, mom, I'm going to Magic Mountain with Doc with Dre. Don't tell nobody where I went if they call. You know what I mean? So that note was was in there with the rhymes and stuff. So it's cool to look back and see, you know, st you know, history. In terms of your lyrics, a third is what you've been through, a third's what you've seen, and a third's what you've heard about. Mm -hmm. um, explain the process for kind of collaborating uh, all of that. Well, you know, it's, it's really about, uh, you know, the art of, of, of the music too. You know, you have to, you know, be clever. You definitely got to rhyme. Um, um, be ironic um, and and have metaphors for things. So, you know, you add those ingredients with experience, and then you see, you know, what needs to be said sometimes. And so, usually, I'll write down, a, you know, a thousand different titles of what a song could be about. You used to set their schedule like specific times for writing only to realize that doesn't work for you at all, yeah. right? When it comes to music, it's a feeling, it's a vibe. And you can finish a, a, a great song pretty fast if you do it when you vibing. Then if you force yourself to write because it's five o'clock and it's time to write. And describe that period in between writing and like the oddest time you've ever started writing. I can write at two in the morning, three in the morning, and then, you know, it's really when you feel it. I could be laying in bed and get up and, and, and um, you know, 
feel an idea and try to work it out. Or, or uh, you know, to me, I think you just you know, got to know that it's inspiration. Uh, and sometimes, you know, your ancestors are talking to you sometimes, so you got to wait to listen. Your early days with the NWA, I believe it's Detroit's uh, Joe Louis Arena. Yeah. Uh, cops stopped the show. Um, what happens and why? We were on tour, and every night we would uh, have um, law enforcement threaten us if we broke any of the ordinances that they had, you know, for stage performances. So, you know, they basically told us we couldn't do anything but <laughs> play a banjo, basically, you know. Usually everything is good, even though we, we're doing certain profanity and stuff they say you can't do, we're doing it. Everybody's happy, no fuss. Uh, when we get to Detroit, though, the song, uh, the police had got bigger. So they were mad by the time we got there. But then we also got mad too at the promoter because he wanted us to perform and basically get the hell out of there because I guess the cops sweated him so much. So he was making us perform early before the building was all the way full. So we were pretty mad about that. And so we said, you know, tonight's the night. We're gonna do the song. And, um, and we started to do it and uh, the, a lot of undercover officers that were in the crowd started to jump on stage. Uh, they threw cherry bombs or M80s. We thought it was gunshots, you know, so, cause we had got, you know, Easy was getting death threats on the road. Uh, so, you know, when we hear that kind of stuff, you know, we, we was out of there, <laughs> we was out. Yeah, and I think at least for a while, cops weren't providing security for the, the shows. And then what was your reaction when you first heard about the FBI letter? You know, we were young and pretty uh, naive to, you know, the FBI's uh, reason for giving a damn about us. You know, we were worried about the LAPD, Compton Sheriff, we were like, you know, the feds go after dope dealers, not rappers, you know what I'm saying? So we didn't really think much of it. Now our record company was freaking out. Our manager, Jerry Heller, was freaking out. And, and we were laughing because, you know, we were like, a letter? Like, this it? You know, we've seen batter rams go through people's house police pulled him out. So we we didn't really care about the magnitude because we was just happy to be, you know, superstars in hip hop. What was the net result of it? Um, I don't know what they did. You know, probably tapped our phone. You know, one of these guys might be an agent. I don't know, they, st <laughs> they still follow me. You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, so there was a 2005 Washington Post article that said in the late 80s and early 90s, he was considered by some to be anti-Semitic, anti-Asian, anti-woman, and well, just plain anti. Um, <laughs> your thoughts on that? Uh, it's ridiculous. You know, when you listen to my records, I talk about everybody. You know, nobody gets a free pass, you know. I'm probably anti-stupid, anti-corrupt, anti-criminal, 
anti-racist. Uh, I call it like I see it. I call everybody out. Um, nobody's exempt. And I call myself out, you know? So I feel like that's what make the world go round, you know? Observing and being able to put it in music. Some people get offended. You know, I, I don't pull punches because I don't think that's what I'm here to do. It's music. It's uh, everybody, you know, the, some of the worst things that ever happened to music was the music video because... What? Well, before a song, everybody had different videos in their head on what the song meant to them. So now somebody's showing you what to think, showing you, you know, what it's supposed to be and taking away your participation in it, your creative mind. Uh, so, you know, I, th I think, you know, people got to look at it as art. And art is, is subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. And once I do it and let it go, people take their own interpretation on what it means to them. How did you view the police growing up? as a occupying force because that's their posture. That's how they see themselves. Um, and that's how they um, come into the neighborhood. That's how they treat the people uh, with disrespect, uh, lesser than, um, here to um, as prey and not, you know, as citizens. So, um, you know, it's a shame that your zip code determines on how you're treated, uh, but it's really that systematic because you go to another zip code and the police treat the people a whole different type of way. So kids grow up loving the police. Kids grow up wanting to be police. Kids grow up, you know, playing cops and robbers, you know, and so that's eroded as they see, you know, more and more disrespect as they get older, that attitude changes. And it's not because they turn from good guys into bad guys. It's something they see, something they witness that turns that feeling. And um, it's real. And um, I think the cops like it. I think they get off on it. I think that's, you know, a badge of honor that, you know, they the biggest gang in the neighborhood. And you still feel that's the case even today? Yeah, without a doubt. How often were you searched without cause, even when <laughs> you were like nine, 10 years old? Uh, not too often. It only has to happen once to, uh, to leave a stain. Uh, and- What was that time for you? Oh, just hanging out on the bikes, you know, a youngster. We had just finished jumping off the curb or, you know, we had our eight or nine of us where our bikes laid down, we on the grass, you know. And uh, the sheriffs, Lennox sheriffs, swoop up and basically get us on the car and search us and, you know, talk shit to us and be dis disrespectful and basically like, you know, I know y'all gonna grow up and, and become, you know, bangers and, and we'll be here to get y'all when y'all do. And, you know, 
we little, but we still know how to say fuck you. You know what I'm saying? So that's what we said. You know, fuck y'all, man. We kids, man. We, we on the bikes. We having fun. You know, we talked about it for a minute, but we went back to playing. You know, we didn't, we didn't uh, let it spoil our day, put it that way. You were once called in an article, the world's most celebrated angry black man. And you <laughs> later said, I've got more understanding about things now, so I'm not so angry about why things are the way they are. Explain yeah. that. Well, for one, that's somebody else's title of yeah. me. Right. I'm not the world's most angry oh, right. as anything. Yeah. But, um, yeah, when you understand the world and you understand things, um, getting angry is not necessary. You know, it's really about figuring out what you're gonna do about it. Getting mad does little. Uh, you know, making a decision, changing how you do things um, is your way to combat whatever you see in the world that makes you mad or angry. Explain the key pieces of the contract with Black America. Uh, the key pieces is, you know, really talking about, you know, um, economic, uh, opportunities. I think we need to shift the focus a little bit from civil rights to economic empowerment and, and uh, inclusion because we live in a capitalist system. Capital is king in America, not civil rights. And we've done things on civil rights and there's a lot of momentum in that direction. And I just think it needs to be just as much momentum when it comes to economic empowerment because everybody know when you got money, people treat you better. And why do you believe it's an eight to 10 year journey? Probably more than that. We have to get people to understand why it has to be done um, before we can get on a you know, time clock. Um, people still don't believe it's necessary. It's a pyramid system. But if the bottom crumbles, the top of that pyramid is gonna come tumbling down. So the bottom is crumbling. You said the Biden administration agreed with 85% of what you had in there. Um, what didn't they agree with? I guess 85% because they didn't, I still haven't spoken to them uh. about it. So, you know, they haven't done anything to act on it. You know, I've had a, uh, one or two, one conversation with uh, an assistant to the president, but no talk with the president um, and, you know, no, no other movement. So we're still working though. We're still, like I said, working behind the scenes. We have, uh, you know, hopefully a major announcement to make soon. And, um, you know, we're gonna go to the private companies and see if they are willing to change some of their practices to move the needle uh, and help, you know, all of us prosper. How did you view the heat um, that you took for engaging with the Trump administration? I just think people didn't understand, you know, exactly where, where I was coming from. Um, and people are really, uh, used to seeing, you know, 
black people just go on one side to the Democratic Party. And, you know, we've been doing that for a long time as a people. And we haven't really gained as much as I believe we should. And I believe it's important to engage with both sides um, and not just one side. Um, because if the one side you engage in with doesn't respond, there's nowhere to turn. So I think by engaging with both sides, you put everybody on notice that whoever's gonna do the most for the people is who we should roll with. Even if it, uh, if it goes against what, you know, the majority of the country wants. We were down to talk to, to both sides right. and only one side was really ready to talk and see if something could be created. Um, and, you know, I have no regrets because it's necessary for people to understand that we have to do something different to change to change the outcome. Again, Cube's business partner, Jeff Quatnitz. After George Floyd, um, Cube put out the contract with Black America, and one of the areas that needed to be addressed was, you know, 100 years of stereotyping in TV and in film. Ice Cube is a man of principle. He wrote the contract of Black America. He believes it. And if he can't stand up for himself, how can he ask other people to stand up for him and, and other black Americans, you know? But he's not some rich, spoiled, you know, star pointing fingers. He walks the walk. He does a lot of things that people don't even know. Contract of Black America has put him under a lot of pressure. Um, there's a lot of people in Hollywood who, you know, want want retribution for him shining the light. And he's, he's a different beast. He he's, has the confidence to know if I do what's right, eventually it will be good. And we can see this. Why Cube is an important civil rights leader is Cube is a man of conviction and, and he hasn't changed. Warner Brothers, um, your manager Jeff told me the Friday film was kind of the last straw and he brought up that uh, that Wall Street Journal article left out a lot of the key pieces of information. Uh, like what? We felt like you know, they were pressured by Warner Brothers and their lawyers to to soften the blow. You know, the, the writer caught Warner Brothers in a series of lies. But the truth of the matter is, you know, that company claims to understand the business that I'm in, but they continue to uh, ignore, dismiss, or um, actually sell away the projects that I'm a part of. So, you know, this has been going on for over 20 years and I don't want projects over there. I think the writer wanted to write a story about a 20 year relationship gone bad with, you know, many, many, many things that were, we believe were very unfair to Cube and we believe, um, a lot of them were generated in stereotypes of race. I want to take my projects to other places who um, are willing to do to do the movies and you know understands my brand uh, 
we've had a great time at places like Universal. Um, and so, you know, uh, Warner Brothers is just uh, terrible for me as a actor, producer, director. Your manager, Jeff, said Warner Brothers is horrible to black creators. Um, mm -hmm. How so? I mean, they have a list of, of uh, complaints and lawsuits and settlements behind the scenes. And um, if you look at the movies they've produced, um, I mean, you can count the, I mean, you can use your, probably your ears to count the black movies they've produced you know, in the last five years that, that made any noise. Um, they've given away some of my biggest movies like Ride Along. They didn't see me and Kevin Hart as being a, a star in Bonafide box office. So Universal put that movie out. And didn't the Chief Toby think Kevin Hart would never be a, a star? Yeah, this is what I heard is that he said to, you know, not only my manager, but to, to the guy that was producing with me that, you know, two black leads are not gonna, not gonna sell overseas. And wasn't it also said that a black family couldn't be the center? Oh yeah, that was, um, that was years ago. You know, it was a movie that was up. You know, at the time, it was just right for me to play uh, the, the father figure of the family and um, they they just didn't want an all-black family, you know. They, they they wanted me to play some FBI agent and have a white family, which is, you know, that's something that is their prerogative. That's not even a movie I'm producing, but, you know, I've hit movies that's sitting there waiting to be made, and uh, they won't do it. So to me, it's just better to part ways. People like Universal and Disney have done a lot to really address the inequalities in that business. What Bob Iger did, um, you know, with, with you know, with giving us all the land of Wakanda, um, you know, they they didn't exploit the culture; they tapped into it and empowered people. Um, and in our opinion. Warner Brothers is the worst offender. That's just based on our analysis of their, their, both their rosters of the movie they make and the budgets they use to market them. You know, there's, there's a segregation of marketing budgets. There's the white budget and the black budget. They wouldn't make straight out of Compton. Um, they said nobody would be interested in a rap movie and that's, it's way more than a rap movie. That's a movie about friends. It's about uh, breakup to makeup. It's about rags to riches. It's David versus Goliath. It's, you know, it's a thousand different stories that we all can uh, relate to. Um, it's not a rap movie. And just by them saying that is insulting. So, you know, they've proven that they um, don't know what they're doing when it comes to Ice Cube. And do you think that's a systemic problem in Warner Brothers or just a, a couple people in senior leadership? You know, Warner Brothers, look at their track record when it comes to representing black people on the screen. You, know, you could take this back to the 1800s. I, I had a congressman tell me that Warner's needs to pay for its atrocities 
And I never thought of it that way. Like atrocities is like, you know, people being gunned down, people being, but he meant it. And part of the atrocities about what's happened to black Americans is very subtle, nuanced stuff. People get their cues about how to act in the world by what they see on film and television. We need to expel problems that are passed on generationally. What changes would you like to see made at the studio? I'd like for them to give me my, my IP back and I can go make my movies. They can get their fee and they can go live happily ever after. Straight out of Compton, you said your son playing you in that movie was arguably your proudest achievement. How so? I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, my own family was able to be a part of that movie. My son was able to play me in that movie. I think it's a, it's a feather in me and uh, my wife, Kim's cap. Um, you know, it's like we got great kids. You know, all of our kids, you know, not just O'Shea Jr., but Daryl and Karima and Sharif. You know, we just got great kids. So we're happy for Shay. You know, right now he's on the set of Star Wars. So he's taking the career and running with it. So we're proud of him. And, um, you know, definitely gonna have a long, long career in this business. And I think when Straight Outta Compton was filming for part of it, you were filming right along too. Yeah. And uh, you and your son would have, I, I think, daily or pretty regular conversations talking about the, the scenes that were yeah. gonna be filmed that day. Take me through what those discussions would entail. Well, that was with my oldest son, Daryl. He, uh, he helped me produce the film. He was my eyes and ears when I was shooting Ride Along for the first, I think for the first three weeks of filming, I was out of town. So, you know, it was just me and him on uh, FaceTime and, and, you know, showing me uniforms, just keeping me uh, up on, up on um, everybody's movement, what needed to be done, any issues on the set. Uh, and it was just great to have you know, both of my sons working so hard to get this movie done. And how do you think those conversations helped? I think, you know, with, with my son, uh, O'Shea, setting him up and letting him know with each scene, not, you know, how to act, but this is how I felt about Dre in this scene. This is how I felt about Easy. This is how I felt about Lonzo. So he went in with the right spirit and the right tone. Uh, and I think that helped him a lot, you know, from scene to scene, knowing, you know, what, what, what I was really thinking. And you were kind of scared for him. Oh yeah, you know, it's, a, it's not easy to, to take this kind of job, uh, playing your father uh, and, 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 you know, people, you know, we're going to think that he was just given a job, that he's not a great actor. And you went to great lengths to make sure everybody knew that was not the case. Yeah, because he worked hard. You know, he worked over two years, different acting coaches, Los Angeles, New York. Um, and he got into it. You know, he would go to these uh, workshops and do do all the work it, it was necessary to 
to do a great job. And I couldn't give him the job. You know, I couldn't just say, you're Ice Cube. You know, I I had to, first I had to get Gary Gray to sign off. And Gary, you know, first thing he looked at me and said, man, man, I thought we was making a real movie. I said, look, look, we are making a real movie. And you can have an audition if you want to. So he had an audition. He brought in, I guess, five or six different ice cubes. And none of them, none of them uh, could outbeat my son. And, and then the studio signed off on him. So it was totally legit. And I'm happy. Fox Hills Mall, 1989. Who do you see there for the first time? Oh, my wife, Kim. Yeah. Uh, I saw her coming down the escalator. Um, and I was down with my other friend, T-Bone. And um, man, when I saw it, this has never went through my head with another person in life. But when I saw her, uh, something automatically went through my head and said, either that could be your woman or that should be your woman. We end up in the same store and uh, man, she, she, she didn't want me. She turned me down. She uh, she was with somebody else, and you remember what she you said or thinking. did? Nah, nah, nah. Uh, my, I think my man T Bone did a lot of the talking, but I just knew that you know this this wasn't gonna happen. So I ended up seeing her. I think five six months later, and uh, just randomly. we remembered each other. Okay. Yeah, and. Uh, we ain't been we ain't been apart since since about August fifth, nineteen eighty nine. You one of the more unique proposal stories that I I'd read it involved yeah. uh, getting a car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to propose to her, but it was also um, close to her birthday. I wanted to get her uh, bought her a BMW and. Uh, pulled it in there and, and, and had, I had the ring sitting on the seat, so she came out for the car. And that was one, you know, moment of joy. But when she saw the ring, it just went to another level. So um, I was just, you know, I was happy that, that, you know, she said yes, and that we was gonna start a life together. And, you know, I always felt like I wouldn't be nowhere near as successful as I am without her. Even, you know, she helped me come to this decision to leave NWA. You know, she was the one I would confide into when I was having issues with the group. What do you think makes it work? Respect. I think, you know, we respect each other. We listen to each other. Um, And, you know, we down for each other. Meaning that you know, we know we're family, no matter what, and we'll do anything um, to make sure nothing comes between our our union. And so, I feel lucky. I wouldn't be here, man. You know, I would have I'd have messed this up a long time ago uh, without Kim. How happy are? you that the two of you met before you actually made it with her it doesn't make a difference you know um 
before I made it, after I made it, you know, she's never changed. She's she's not um, a different person. She's still, um, <laughs> you know, entertainment doesn't impress her. You right. know what I'm saying? The entertainment business is not what makes uh, this lady tick. Um, she's, you know, on a whole nother level. You know, we still gotta catch up. Before you found success, tell uh, about a time you've found smart ways to save money or to make it financially. Before I found success, uh, I was broke. I didn't know how to save money, you know, to be honest. Um, I just knew that, you know, money is a tool and that you can't be too reckless with it or too uh, precious with it. You have to use it to advance uh, the things you want to do in life. Sometimes I would go for broke, you know, uh, if it was something I needed to advance my self or career, but it was always for a positive cause and thank God, God was always, you know, replenishing me in some way, shape or form. You know, at the end of the day, it's really making sure that you understand that money's a tool. Being Scrooge McDuck with it, you know, sitting on all this money without, you know, moving it or making it work for you um, is not the answer. And spending it all in one place is not the answer either, so. How about best and worst financial decision? Best financial decision I ever made, uh, not signing with NWA, uh, not signing that contract. Worst financial decision I made, uh, probably not buying a little Bitcoin. <laughs> your manager, Jeff, said one of your best qualities is you don't panic. How much would you agree with that? Yeah, I'm not a panic person. You know, I, uh, I believe, and I learned this riding a motorcycle, if you know you're gonna wreck, it's up to you to slow that motorcycle down as slow as you can get it before you hit. So don't panic, slow it down, you might not hit. You know, if you panic and jump off, you definitely gonna hit. So I'm always about, you're not hit till you hit, you're not, you're not out of it till they count you out and it's not over till, you know, the fat lady sing or somebody stuff something in her mouth where she can't sing. But, you know, it's really all about seeing what's going to happen, man, and, and rolling to the wheels fall off to me. Again, Cube's business partner, Jeff Quatnitz. People don't realize how hard Cube works. Nothing has come easy for him. He works very hard. Our relationship isn't born in fear. I'm afraid of getting fired if I tell him my opinion and he doesn't like it. He's not afraid of questioning things that I'm doing. And we've had over a 25 year relationship and pretty early on, I realized this guy will be loyal till the end as long as, you know, you are honestly working to help him and to help what we're doing. He's a very loyal guy, but he's not loyal to the point of being a fool. He's loyal to people who deserve loyalty. I mean, he was my hero. I was at Harvard Law School. I was bumping NWA and Public Enemy. And then like a few years later, I'm 
sitting in a room with him, helping him. And we've helped each other, and it's, uh, it's an honor. But, um, you know, I'll go through a wall for him. I take a bullet for him, and, and, and that's real. And that's because he's let, he, he's let me really try to come through for him. And I can tell just looking at you, I mean, that means something to you. Of course. Everybody wants to know that who they're working with, that you matter that they appreciate what you do. When you know they're really letting you come through for them, then you better come through because you have to honor that. Why do you think your dreams have been able to come true? You know, having the vision to dream um, and having the passion to see it out, um, understanding what it takes, knowing what I know, know what I don't know, and um, doing what it takes. You know, I think that's the answer for a lot of things. You gotta do what it takes, or you can't expect to be successful. Thank you very much. All right, man, no problem, man. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Ice Cube. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger to see him make an unbelievable four-point shot at Big Three Media Day where we also get a chance to hang out with basketball legends like Julius Irving, Clyde Drexler, and Lisa Leslie. As always, we appreciate when you rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.